me ask you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Book of Romans, chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me say a special word of greeting to our guests. Uh, we are very, very glad to have you here with us this morning. And uh, we hope that you feel welcome. And you please know that you're welcome here anytime. We love having guests with us. And we hope you'll be blessed uh, by your time with us this morning. Let me also mention that if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one provided in the seats in front of you. And if you want to use one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 948 in those Bibles. Last Sunday, we began looking at the subject of Christian zeal. And we were brought to that subject by three commands. Uh, They come rapid fire in Romans 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We have seen that these three commands call us to work hard for the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially these commands call us to work with fervency. To work with zeal. To work with passion. Christians are to be a people who are boiling for Christ. So even as we begin this morning, let me just ask you the same question I asked as we ended last week. How is your zeal for Christ today? Uh, To help us, Joel Beakey asks a few questions. He says, are you as zealous about God's glory as you are about your reputation? Are you as zealous about church as you are about playing sports or watching sports? Are you as zealous about communing with the Holy Trinity as you are about talking to your friends? Are you as zealous about spiritual fitness as you may be about physical fitness? Are you as zealous about reading and meditating on God's word as you are about sitting down to watch a two-hour movie? The Puritan Christopher Love observed that people, quote, are generally as hot as fire for earth and as cold as ice for heaven. He said, how many pant after the earth who have no breathing after heaven? How's your heart this morning? What has your heart? What are you living for? What gets you up in the morning? Uh, We saw last week the need for zeal uh, with billions on their way to hell. 7,000 unreached people groups, a nation falling into moral decadence, families breaking apart, addictions abounding, churches abandoning the gospel, and a pervasive complacency among American Christians. We need an awakening of Christian passion. We need Christian zeal. We also saw the definition of zeal, uh, to put it simply, it is the heat of the Christian life. 
Uh, We're using Samuel Ward's definition, which I think captures the biblical idea quite well. Christian zeal is a spiritual heat wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit. And this spirit-given heat, it energizes every aspect of the Christian's life. Uh, Our love is to be a zealous love. Our faith, a zealous faith. Our kindness, a zealous kindness. Our joy, a zealous joy. And this zeal, this heat, is to energize our acts of obedience. This zeal is to energize our worship, our devotion, our fulfilling of our callings. This inward zeal is not to make us give in to emotionalism, but rather this zeal is meant to cause us to give our all for Christ on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. and Every task that he puts before you. We saw the command for zeal. In fact, we unpacked each of these three commands last Sunday morning, explaining how each of these commands is a call to Christian passion. We just need to understand zeal is not an option for the Christian life. This verse isn't given to us to say Christian zeal is something good if you happen to be able to get it. But it's optional. It's not necessary. No, this is a command. In fact, it's a trifold command. It's three commands all with the same emphasis. We are commanded by our Savior to be boiling for him. Our love for Jesus is to be like magma building up in a volcano, erupting in the the flowing lava of practical, joyful obedience. And so here's where we're going this morning. First, I want to answer an objection. Second, I want us to look at zeal exemplified. What are some examples of Christian zeal? And then we're going to look at zeal obtained. How do we practically obey these commandments? But first, the objection. It kind of came out at the end of the sermon last Sunday, but we didn't have time to deal with it then. So I want to put it before us now. And the objection goes something like this. Justin, why are you making such a big deal about Christian zeal? Why does passion matter in the Christian life? If I'm being productive in my callings, if I'm caring for people, if I'm worshiping God, if I'm witnessing, who cares whether or not I feel anything while I'm doing it? The point is, I'm doing it. As long as good things are being done in Jesus' name and He's being honored, isn't that what matters? If I'm being productive for Jesus, who cares whether I'm passionate? Well, why does Psalm 100 verse 2 say, serve the Lord with gladness? Why not just say, serve the Lord the way our third command does? Why why does it matter that we serve the Lord with gladness? Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why does the joy matter? 
We're coming to sing, and we sing spiritual truths into one another's ears that's good for us to hear. You're loving me when you sing gospel truths into my ears. I'm loving you when I sing gospel truths into your ear. Why does it matter whether we do it with joy? The truths are the truths either way. The language shows up in places you might not expect. Uh, Philippians 2. Paul instructs those Christians to receive Epaphroditus. And he tells them to receive him with joy. That is, open up your homes to him, practice hospitality, but practice hospitality with joy. Epaphroditus had been sick. He's finally well. He says, receive him back with joy. In Hebrews 13, Christians are commanded to obey and submit to their church leaders in such a way that those leaders can carry out their duties with joy. Why does that matter? Why does God make it a command that churches help their church leaders have joy in their service? As long as pastors are preaching and teaching and praying and fulfilling their duties, why does it matter how they feel? You know Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. And it's not a suggestion and it's not an invitation. It's a command. So, so God commands our emotions. God commands our feelings. We're to be a people who even when we're suffering... Even when we lost a job, even when we've got a cancer diagnosis, in the midst of the tears, inwardly, there's always to be this base level sense of joy. Joy is to be a dominant theme in our lives. Uh, One more. Did you know that one of the great reasons that God brought judgment on his people Israel is because they lost their joy in him. Why was the northern kingdom destroyed? Why did the southern kingdom get taken as slaves into Babylon? Deuteronomy 28 verse 47 says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will serve against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. That is strong language. That is language of curse. That is language of strong judgment. And God says, I am going to put you in that terrible, deplorable state. Why? Not because you didn't serve me, but because you did not serve me with joyfulness and with gladness in your heart. For some reason, this really matters to God. Not just that you serve, but how you serve. Why? You can't get away from the fact that emotions matter in the Bible. Yes, I'll say it again. We want to avoid the trap of emotionalism. There is such a thing as the zeal without knowledge. We preached a whole sermon on that back in Romans 10. So if you want the, to balance this sermon out, go listen to that one. Okay. There is such a thing as zeal without knowledge. But there's also such a thing as a kind of obedience to God that is devoid of feeling. 
A kind of obedience to God that is devoid of passion. We do not want to be the people who say good things and do good things while our hearts are far from God. The heart matters. And here's why. Jesus is more greatly glorified. And he is shown to be the great king and savior he is when his people serve him out of the joy of their salvation. The whole universe exists to display the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The whole universe exists to show the glory of God in the way that Jesus has come to save a people and show them grace and mercy. Everything exists to show the wonders of the grace of God. Nothing dishonors Jesus more than when the same people who have received that grace then respond with, eh. Even worse, when we obey Jesus, but we obey Jesus while grumbling, while complaining. Nothing dishonors Christ quite like us gathering for worship because we feel like we have to, not because we want to. I hope that's nobody in here. Nothing dishonors Christ more than cold obedience. Obedience that is dragged out of us. Obedience that is forced and insincere. Way back when we started this series on Romans 12, I told a story and I told it to make one point then. I'm going to tell you the same story but with a different point this time. And I hope it will illustrate why our joy and our hearts matter. So imagine that there's a good and noble king. And in his kingdom... There is a particular woman who is very wicked and grotesque. Uh, This woman has committed crimes worthy of death. This woman is being kept in prison until her sentence will be carried out. There is nothing beautiful about this woman. And yet, for some reason, the king sets his heart on this woman. At great cost to himself, he goes and he upholds justice. He bears on himself the punishment for her crimes, and she is pardoned. But there's more. The king comes to this woman. He releases her from prison. He cleans her up. He puts her in new royal clothes, and then he brings her into his palace as his wife where she was once cruel and selfish and unkind, his intense love for her begins to transform her. The king's love is changing this woman. She used to be so bitter. She used to be so angry and self-centered. And slowly, she's beginning to become more like the one who loves her. Kindness is beginning to show itself. Generosity is beginning to show itself. So one day, you and I visit the palace. And we see the king, and he's there in his throne room. And around the king, there are lots of people going back and forth. There's some folks bringing the king food and drink. There's others who are coming to the king, and he gives them instructions. And they they go off and run the errands that the king gives them. But you recognize one of the men running errands for the king. He's been trying to obtain some land. That's why he's here serving the king. He knows that the king can grant him the land he wants. He's he's working so that the king will look favorably on his request for land. 
You see another person serving the king and you recognize him. This one owes the king a great debt. He couldn't pay his debt to the king. And so he's here working off his debt. But then among all of these other servants, you recognize the king's bride. And here she is and she's serving her husband. And she's not serving him to get anything from him. He's already given her all that he has. She's not here trying to work off a debt. She could never work enough to repay all that the king has done for her. No, this queen is serving her husband for this reason. She loves him. She loves her king. She is living in the mercy that he has shown her. It is her joy to serve him. And the question that I put before us is simply this. Which of these people serving the king displays best his glory? Which one of these people best shows how great this king really is? The first person shows something of the king's glory. It shows that the king owns a lot of land. The second person shows something of the king's glory. It shows that he is a God of fairness, a king of justice, a king who who requires debts to be paid. But it is his wife serving in the love of the king, serving in the joy of the king, who best shows his power to transform. His power to take those who are selfish and bitter and unkind and cruel and to make them happy servants of God. The depths of the king's care for his bride shines forth even in the way she serves him. That's exactly how it is with us. King Jesus is more accurately seen as the glorious, gracious, wonderful Savior that he is when his bride, us the church, Serve him with gladness, with joy. We are to serve our Lord in the joy of the Lord. We are to serve our Lord in the joy of the salvation that we have found in him. And so, yes, how you serve matters. And we should repent of cold hearts. We should repent of begrudging obedience. And we should seek to obey the commands of God with a fervent spirit. Okay, so that's my attempt to answer the objection. Now, examples of Christian zeal. Zeal exemplified. First example of Christian zeal, the ultimate example of Christian zeal, is God himself. Did you know that zeal is an attribute of God? We don't talk about this one as much. We talk about his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's a spirit. He is wise. He is good. But very seldom, even in books on the attributes of God, do you find a chapter on the zeal of God. And yet zeal is an attribute of God. You know this from one of the most famous verses that we read every year at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says, To us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And sometimes we stop and we leave out the last sentence. 
Yes, this Messiah is going to come. And God's going to work through this Messiah to establish the eternal kingdom. A kingdom where justice will reign forevermore. And Jesus will be to his people a wonderful counselor and a prince of peace. What does the last sentence say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This kingdom will come about because of God's passion for his glory. God's passion for his name, God's passion for his son, God's passion for his people. That's what's going to bring about all that happens in the days of Jesus and in our New Testament age. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is not doing what he does half-heartedly. He's zealous about it. (coughs) Excuse me. I loved the songs that we sung this morning. So I sung them too much. And so my voice is going. And it's important when you preach on zeal that you preach zealously as an example. And so my voice is going. Some people do get uncomfortable talking about God as a God of passions. And I understand that. Our God does not change. Our God is not subject to emotional highs and emotional lows. What God is today, He has always been and will continue to be. There is a very real sense in which our God can be accurately described as a God without passions. But in a very real sense also, the scripture uses this language of zeal about God. And the point seems to be this. God is always fully committed to absolutely everything that he does. Whatever God wills to do, he fully wills to do it. Our God does things all the way. He does them perfectly. In fact, listen to this. Isaiah 59, 17 says, God wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. In other words, zeal marks everything that God does. He wears it like his clothes. God is fully committed to his every action. Therefore, when Jesus says to his disciples, I will build my church, he's only repeating the resolve and the commitment of God heard all the way back in Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Matthew Henry says, note, the heart of God is much upon the advancement of the kingdom of Christ among men. And this is very comforting to all those who wish it well. (laughs) Do you wish it well? Do you wish for the kingdom of Christ to be built in this world? Are you praying for missionaries? Are you longing to see people reached with the gospel? Here's the great news. The zeal of the Lord is committed to this. The building up of Christ church, it will happen. God is fully committed to it. The gospel will reach people in every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And then the end will come and the Lord Jesus will come take us to himself. It's going to happen. How do you know? The zeal of the Lord will do this. There are other examples of Christian zeal. Certainly the Apostle Paul is an example for us. J.C. Ryle says, See him from the day of his conversion 
giving up his brilliant prospects, forsaking all for Christ's sake, going forth to preach the very Jesus he had once despised. See Paul going to and fro throughout the world from that time through persecution, through oppression, through opposition, through prisons, through bonds, through afflictions, through things next to death, death itself, up to the very day when he sealed his faith with his blood and died at Rome, a martyr for that gospel which he had so long proclaimed. Remember the zeal of Paul. Remember how he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You remember Paul's words in Philippians 2. He said, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He said, I press on towards the call for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God was everything to Paul. Christ was his all in all. With every act of obedience, with each new project, with each new obstacle to overcome, he was learning to see more and more of his God. He was going further and further up the mountain of beholding God's wisdom and faithfulness of wisdom and glory. He didn't know how far he would ascend that mountain of beholding more of God in his life, but he kept serving, he kept serving, he kept obeying. And then he breathed his last and he beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. Don't you long to hear your Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you long to live for that prize? It's interesting after Paul describes his passion for Jesus and his eager, his commitment to his calling. He then says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. In other words, Paul says Christian zeal is a mark of maturity in the faith. Living with zeal for God, pressing on, leaning in. This is what a mature Christian looks like. We get it backwards. We think it's a new believer. It's a brand new believer. When they first come to Jesus, they have lots of zeal. It's the baby Christian that has lots of passion. But then as they grow a bit, they begin to settle in. They begin to cool off a bit. With our kind of thinking, the passionate Christian is the baby Christian. And the, the complacent Christian is the mature Christian. And that's backwards. It's not what the Bible says. There is an emotional instability that we have as younger Christians that should decrease as we grow in faith, giving way to a godly contentment and a rock-solid peace in our lives. The more we grow in Christ, the less easily rattled we should be, the less we should find ourselves shaken by our circumstances. But when it comes to zeal for Jesus, if you're growing in Christ, your zeal for Jesus should be growing. You should have more passion for him today than you did a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Your commitment to him, your love for him, your heart's commitment to him should be greater now than at any point in your life if you're growing as a Christian. So let me ask you, are you not living more today? In the mercy of God than you were living yesterday. Have you not received even more grace? You've certainly committed more sins. Have you not received more grace today than at any other time in your history? As each year passes, don't the evidences of God's goodness and faithfulness to you just keep piling up? In other words, you have more reason 
to be zealous for God today than you even did a year ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So it reminds me of the Avengers movie, the first Avengers movie. And in that movie, the characters keep asking the Incredible Hulk, what's your secret, right? So you know the Hulk. Uh, the Hulk gets, keeps getting put in these frustrating circumstances. The Hulk keeps getting put in these circumstances that would make people angry. And you know what happens to the Hulk when he gets angry. He gets big and green and mean. Well, in that movie, the Hulk had clearly somehow learned to control his anger. Because even in the most stressful circumstances, circumstances that would make any of us get very angry, he's, he's staying calm. He's not turning into the Hulk. And so the others keep asking him, what's your secret? What's your secret? And you may remember his answer comes at the end of the movie. The enemies are approaching. Captain America says, um, Hulk, this might be a good time to get angry. And the Hulk's reply was, you wanted to know my secret? I'm always angry. And with that reply, what he's saying is, everywhere I go, I'm carrying this inward boiling anger in my chest. This anger, I'm carrying it with me every day, and that's how I've learned to control it. Well, you and I are not called to be a people of anger, but we all are called to be a people of consistent, constant, persistent zeal. And so this is how zeal for God should be for us. We're always zealous, everywhere, everything we do. It's always there, just under the surface. By the way, zeal for God does include some anger. Anger against sin, anger against the devil, anger against all that angers God. But zeal for God includes much more than that. It's, it's a passionate obsession for God. It's, it's a passionate obsession with God's glory and His greatness, His majesty and His, his kingdom project. And so whether we're mowing the lawn at home or whether we're checking in with a friend, maybe we're finishing the expense report at work, maybe we're worshiping here at church, but the zeal for Christ should always be there. I'm going to recommend a book. That's what I do. So J.C. Ryle, Practical Religion. Easy, good reading, not hard to understand, and deeply moving. A great, great book. I want to read you just a little bit of some of the examples he gives of Christian zeal. I don't usually quote this much in the sermon, but I, I couldn't find a way to write it better. So I just I was going to read, read from him. He says, this zeal was characteristic of the early Christians. These were men that were spoken against everywhere. They were driven to worship God in the dens and the caves of the earth. They often lost everything in the world for their religion's sake. They generally gained nothing but the cross, persecution, shame, and reproach. But they seldom, very seldom went back. If they could not debate, they would at least suffer. If they could not convince their adversaries by argument, they could die and prove that they themselves were in earnest. He says, look at Ignatius. Cheerfully traveling to the place where he was to be devoured by lions, saying as he went, now do I become a disciple of my master Christ. Or here, old Polycarp, before that Roman governor, saying boldly when he was called upon to deny Christ, four score and six years have I served Christ. He's never offended me in anything. How then can I revile my king? He says, remember Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther boldly defied the most powerful hierarchy the world has ever seen. He unveiled the corruptions with an unflinching hand. He preached the long-neglected truth of justification by faith. Hear him saying, when men were persuading him from going to the deed of Worms, reminding him of the fate of John Huss, he said, though there were a devil under every tile on the roofs of this building, in the name of the Lord I shall go forward. That's true zeal. I might die. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I show up, but I know God's given me a job to do. If there's a devil under every tile on the, in the roofs of that building, nevertheless, in the name of the Lord, I'm going forward. He talks about um, Wycliffe. He says, Wycliffe rose up on his sickbed and said to the friars who wanted him to retract all that he had said against the Pope, he said, I shall not die. I will live to declare the wickedness of the friars. He points to Thomas Cranmer, who died at the stake rather than deny Christ's gospel, holding out first to be burned the hand, which in a moment of weakness had signed a recantation, and saying as he held it in the flames, this unworthy hand. So Thomas Cranmer, in a moment of weakness, had signed a, a document where he recanted his, his faith, his stance. And so who does he do when he's being taken to the stake because he'd reclaimed his faith? He puts that hand in first. He says that to his unworthy hand. Uh, you have Latimer standing boldly on his kindling wood for the fire at age 70 years old, saying to the younger man, to Ridley, Courage, Brother Ridley, we shall put such a candle this day that by God's grace shall never be put out. Last one. He says this zeal was the characteristic of all the great missionaries. Look at Adoniram Judson, William Carey. Look at Morrison, Schwartz, Williams, Brainerd, Elliot. You see this zeal in none more brightly than Henry Martin. Here was a man who had reached the highest scholastic honors that Cambridge could bestow. Whatever profession he chose to follow, he had the most dazzling prospects of success. But he turned his back on it all. He chose to preach the gospel to poor heathen. He went to an early grave in a foreign land. And he said when he got there and saw the condition of the people, I would be willing to be torn in pieces if I could only hear the cries of repentance. I could see the eyes of faith directed to the Redeemer. Clearly, we're not going to get to that last point about how to obtain zeal. We'll do that next time. I just want to say this. You want to obtain Christian zeal in your life? Read good biography. Know your church history. Remember Hebrews 11 and that hall of faith where you have example after example after example of people who trusted Christ and followed Christ when it was hard because they loved him. Well, in the same way, we have 2,000 years of men and women, boys and girls, who obeyed Christ when it was hard because they were, they were the flames of zeal in their heart. If you want to fan the flames of zeal in your heart, use our church library. Read some of these books we have out here in the foyer. We can give you good recommendations, example after example of people to stir up your soul to follow Christ. And of course, read the four Gospels. Because who could be better as an example of Christian zeal than Christ himself. Remember how the disciples watched him driving out the money changers in the temple and they remembered that it was written about him. Zeal for your house will consume me. Remember how Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See Jesus contending with the devil after 40 days with no food or drink. See, Jesus so worn out from ministry that even in a terrible storm when everybody's afraid, he's fast asleep in the boat. 
and yet see that whenever the crowds found him, even when the disciples were trying to send the people away, even when the disciples were trying to carve out time for Jesus to have some rest, we find over and over again, Jesus healed every one of them. Jesus taught them all. When the disciples were trying to send them away, we see Jesus multiplying the fish and the loaves so that they could stay and he could keep on ministry. At any time, Christ could have stopped the tortures he received at the hand of Roman soldiers. At any moment, Christ could have put an end to the agony he knew as he wore the crown of thorns on the cross. Jesus, if he'd been willing at any moment, could have called down a thousand angels to rescue him from that cross. Every moment of unimaginable agony that Jesus suffered was voluntary. He was there by his own choice and he was kept on the cross every second by his own decision to be there. And we have to ask why? Why would anybody suffering in that way who had the power to make it stop? Why would he stay? And the answer was his zeal, his passion for his father, his passion for his people. Jesus would let no pain, no agony, not even the experience of his father's wrath poured out against him, keep him from the grand act that would save sinners and build his kingdom. For Jesus, God's glory was everything. When Isaiah 9 says the zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this, it's ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. It was the zeal of Jesus that brought about your salvation. Even now, Jesus is zealous as your Redeemer. Alive, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, He is right now interceding for His people. He is carrying out God's plan for history contained in that book of the seals in Revelation. Jesus is Lord over all, and He's bringing this world to its proper end. Even today, and I pray it's happening massively today, Jesus is saving thousands. Would He save millions today? Jesus is building His church today. And so if you are longing for Christian zeal, and I hope you are because it's commanded, and it is the path of joy, if you are longing for Christian zeal, run to Christ and look at His example. Look at His love for you, His passion for you, His commitment to you, and let that cause you in your heart to respond back with passion for Him. We love Him because He first loved us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.